Good morning. So the weather's getting warmer outside, which means my favorite time of year is upon us, wedding season. (laughs) Might be a bit of an exaggeration. I don't have anything against weddings, though. I like weddings. I have noticed, though, and I think you probably have too, there tends to be a lot, a lot, a lot of time and care and attention paid to how everything in a wedding looks. Like the flowers and the handout and the colors and the stage design and, 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 and the centerpieces and the tablecloths and the cloths that cover the chairs and, and something I had never heard of before until my wedding, the chargers. What's a charger? Everything is carefully selected, curated to, to, to arrive at the best possible appearance. And that's all well and good. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you've been married for more than like 10 minutes, you know that much more important than how everything looks on your wedding day is the quality of the person that you're marrying, right? <laughs> So think about the bride and the groom. Uh, The bride and the groom, we want them to be physically attracted to each other, right? That this is a good thing. We want them to look their best. We want the bride to look beautiful. We want the groom to look handsome. But, But external beauty is fleeting and marriage is for life. And so it's much more important who your spouse is on the inside than what he or she looks like on the outside. And that's one of the reasons we do premarital counseling. It gives an opportunity for the couple to prepare their hearts for marriage. And it gives the the couple and the pastor an opportunity to discern if God is leading them to even marry this person, to join with them for life, because it's a very big decision. We're going to see in our passage today that God's going to make a very big decision too. He's going to choose the next king for his people, Israel. And we're going to see is that in this matter, it doesn't matter to God what the person looks like on the outside or what his credentials are. What matters is who he is on the inside. Is he a man after God's own heart? The main point of our passage today is that God evaluates a man not based on what he looks like, but on who he is. And we can have hope that we will measure up to God's evaluation, not because we're like really great people, but only if we too are men or women after God's own heart. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're back in our No King But Jesus sermon series, walking through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. You'll find 1 Samuel 16 on page 185 of the Auditorium Bibles. To briefly review where we've been uh, earlier in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel had rejected God as their king 
and they had insisted that they have a human king, just like all the godless nations around them. And God, kind of maybe surprisingly, in his grace, he gives them a king. He appoints a man named Saul to be their king. But we saw the last time we were in 1 Samuel that Saul was a total mess. He had many flaws, but the worst of them and what finally disqualified him from continuing to be the king of God's people is that he repeatedly refused to humble himself and submit to God's word. So God announced to Saul through his prophet Samuel that Saul was no longer going to be king that God had found another to replace him, a man after God's own heart. And then chapter 15 ends with, with Samuel and Saul parting ways. And Samuel and the Lord grieving over the failure of Saul. So that's where we left off in chapter 15. Saul falls from grace. God dethrones him. Samuel's grieving. Things are not looking good. But what we'll see in our passage today is that God graciously and sovereignly provides a new and better king for his people. And his choice is actually quite surprising. So let's begin reading. Let's begin by reading verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God's not phased by the failures of Saul. Samuel was right to grieve over Saul. It was a terrible tragedy, a disaster for God's people. They appeared to be in a desperate situation, but God graciously does not leave them in that situation and he does not leave Samuel in despair. He reminds Samuel who's really in control here. He says, I have provided for myself a king. What an incredible statement. What an incredible statement. I have provided for myself a king. I have provided. Who could say such a thing but God? Samuel could not have provided. I have provided for myself. Who are these people or whose are these people, Israel, that need a king? They're God's people. They exist for his glory. So if they're God's people and they're for his glory, then of course he is going to provide for himself a king. God's reminding Samuel that he has a plan and he is working his plan. This is an encouraging word for us today. So we're just coming out of our Making Sense of Suffering series We've talked a lot about God's plan and how God is working his plan even in and through our suffering. 
If you're a believer in Jesus, God's plan for you is that you will be conformed into the image of God. And what we've seen is that God uses suffering in that transformation process. And he will continue to work even in our suffering for the rest of our lives until one day that transformation process will finally be complete and believers, all believers for all time will live forever with God in a new garden of Eden where there will be no more suffering. That's the plan. That's the plan. That's where all this is going. That's how the story ends. We know how the story ends. We just don't know exactly what it's going to look like until we get there. And Samuel didn't know either. Samuel didn't know whom God had appointed or how this was going to happen. He just knew, even in his grief, that God had a work for him to do. He just knew that even in his sorrow, he was being called to get up and grab his oil and go. Isn't it encouraging to know that God has a plan for your life? And isn't it encouraging to know that God has good works prepared for you? Ephesians 2.10 says that God has prepared these good works for each and every one of his children whom he has called that we should walk in them. We don't know what all these good works are gonna be. And we don't know exactly how we're gonna do them. But God knows. And we've got God. His grace is sufficient for us, right? Because his power is made perfect in our weakness. We don't know how we're gonna make it to the finish line. We know we will. We know we will because we have a God who is faithful, faithful to complete that good work which he began in each and every one of his children. Amen? Amen. Amen. In the midst of Samuel's grief, God has a good work for him to do. And so Samuel, he gets up, he grabs his oil and he goes. And he goes to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse and his family because that's exactly what God told him to do. And so Samuel gathers Jesse and his sons to him because he's gonna see now whom God has appointed, whom God has chosen to be the king. So let's pick up our story here. Let's go down to verse six. So when they came, that's Jesse and his sons, when they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's out keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here we see God's most surprising choice in the one he anoints as king. Not the well-built Eliab, not any of the older sons, but the youngest, the runt, the boy whom Jesse didn't even think was worth inviting to the party. That's the one God chooses to be king over his people. Why? Well, the reason is found in verse seven. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. How true is that, right? Uh Uh-huh. Think about our political leaders, the ones whom we choose to govern over us. We tend to be drawn to those with a certain stature, right? Like those who carry themselves a certain way, those who exude a certain confidence. We, like Samuel, we see someone like that and we think, oh yeah, that's our guy or that's our woman. We're we're drawn to the visual. I was a political science major in college, I confess. I have forgotten almost everything I learned from that time, and that's okay. It doesn't really matter. But, But one thing I do remember is a story from the 1960 presidential race between Kennedy and Nixon. You see, this race included the first ever series of televised presidential debates. So this was a big deal because not only was there gonna be a debate, but for the first time, it was gonna be broadcast on national television. This was new. And in the first debate, Nixon famously declined to wear makeup. Didn't need the makeup, he thought. He had also just bunged up his knee, so he probably wasn't in a good mood. And he didn't shave. So he wasn't looking his best. Kennedy, on the other hand, he took the makeup, and as we all know, Kennedy had some natural advantages in the looks department. (laughs) But the interesting thing about this is that after the debate, it's widely believed that those who listened on the radio thought Nixon won, but those who watched on television were sure that Kennedy had won. You see that the visual is powerful. But God's not interested in what man can see, is he? God's not interested in that. God sees things differently. God looks on 
the heart. This is both a warning and an encouragement for us today in the church. So what's the warning? God selected a leader for his people based on his heart. We, of course, today in the church select leaders for us. And we've got to be careful not to be captivated by the external, by how a person carries himself or what he can do. We've got to look beneath the surface to who he is as a person. What is his character? What is his heart? When you look at the qualifications for elder or deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you're going to notice that they're almost all character traits. There's far more character traits listed than even abilities. And so what I think God's telling us here is that when it comes to leadership in his church, it's more important who a person is than what he can do or even certainly what he looks like. And that's true for any kind of leadership in the church. Not just elders or deacons, but, but, but student ministry leaders and children's ministry leaders and community group leaders. If you want to lead in God's church, it's far more important who you are as a person on the heart level than what you can do or where you come from or what you look like. That's the warning. That's the warning for us today. The encouragement, though, the encouraging side of this is that good leaders of God's people can come from anywhere. So one of my favorite Disney movies, one of my favorite movies, actually, is Ratatouille. I've got four kids. I liked the movie well before I had the kids. In the movie, Chef Gusteau is famous for the line, anyone can cook. And the bad guy, Anton Ego, he's the food critic, he snivels at that, and he says, not anyone can cook. (laughs) But he learns, by the end of the movie, after he discovers a rat who's an excellent excellent chef, it's a great movie, he learns (laughs) that what Gusteau meant is not that everyone can cook, but that good cooks can come from anywhere. The same is true in the church. Not everyone is necessarily qualified or gifted to lead, but good leaders can come from anywhere. David was the runt of the litter. He was a shepherd boy, and yet God chose him to be king. Andrew, Peter, James, and John were fishermen. Jesus chose them to be his disciples and to be the apostles of his church. Jesus himself was from a backwater village called Nazareth, not Jerusalem. He was a carpenter's kid. He wasn't a prince. The point is, it doesn't matter where you come from. By God's grace, you can come into his kingdom And you can even lead others into and in his kingdom. And I find this super exciting because almost weekly, I hear a story of how God's working powerfully in people's lives in this church to transform them. Like totally new creations. Imagine that. Sometimes it's practically overnight. 
And other times it's a process that takes years and years, but either way, it's encouraging to hear stories of where people have come from and where they are now and how God's been working every step of that way. And I'm just excited because I know I'm gonna see you and I'm gonna see how God uses you for his glory. And it might be informal leadership, like an elder or a deacon or a ministry leader, or it might just be in your everyday walk with the Lord, how you, how you show Jesus, how you, how you share Jesus, how you live out the gospel in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and in your homes, because we're all called to that. That is for all of God's people. And by the way, those character traits in 1 Timothy 3, those are things we should all strive for and aspire to. God looks on the heart. And the Bible is full of stories of God using really unlikely people on the outside to do really extraordinary things. And I know, and I've seen, and he will do the same thing today. Doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you look like. God can anoint you for service in his kingdom for his glory. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that is a beautiful thing. So that leads though to the very important question of what is it about the heart anyway? Like what is it? about David's heart that was different from Eliab's or any of his older brothers. And it's actually kind of puzzling if you think about it because Jeremiah 17, nine says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Romans three ten through 12 says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's like God's trying to make a point there. We know then from his word that there was nothing inherently better about David. He didn't have this naturally good heart that was different from his brother's naturally evil hearts. We know that David was a sinner just like the rest of us. And if you hang with us in this sermon series, you're gonna see David's sin in spectacular ways. So spoiler alert, David's gonna have a man killed to cover up his affair with the man's wife. That's messed up. Like that is not your everyday garden variety kind of sinning, is it not? So what's going on here? David was born a sinner, conceived in iniquity, he writes in the Psalms. He's gonna sin in big ways like we're gonna see. He's a sinner, he sins, he's gonna keep on sinning and this is the man after God's own heart? What does that mean? What's going on? 
the picture comes into focus when we contrast David with Saul. So David is Saul's replacement, right? David's the man after God's own heart, unlike Saul. So what was Saul's big problem? Saul's big problem was that when he was confronted with God's word, including his own sin, he did not submit to God. He was proud. He was arrogant. He made excuses. He did his own thing, his own way, time and time again. And David, as imperfect as he was, by God's grace, by God's grace, David had a genuine desire to follow God's will for his life. So we see that in the Psalms. The Psalms are full of statements that David wrote of love and praise and devotion to the Lord. And we see it when he's confronted with his own sin, like even the really big one that I mentioned. When Nathan confronts him with his sin with Bathsheba, he repented. He owned up to it. He confessed. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the difference. When you're confronted with your sin, do you harden your heart like Saul? Or do you submit yourself to the Lord like David? It made all the difference for them and it makes all the difference for us too. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says that godly grief, godly sorrow over your sin produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you're mad at me. I'm sorry things are now hard for me. Worldly grief leads to death. When you're confronted with your sin, if you harden your heart, if you ignore it, make excuses for it, refuse to turn from it, it leads nowhere good. But if you humble yourselves before God, if you confess your sin, if you, if you turn from it, if you repent, then you will receive that blessed salvation without regret. And God will actually give you that new heart that we also desperately need. That's what his word says in Ezekiel 36 and John chapter three. If you wanna come into God's kingdom and if you wanna be raised up for God, to be used for him, for his glory. It starts with and it continues in repentance. Repentance. You know, as good of a king as David was, he wasn't the king, though, that God's people needed. You see, David was but a foreshadowing 
of the better and truer king to come. David was God's sovereign, gracious provision after the utter failure of Saul. Jesus, the son of God, was the father's sovereign, gracious provision for our utter failure to atone for our sins, to die the death that we deserve. David was the unlikely king, the shepherd boy, the youngest in his family. Jesus, as the prophet Isaiah said, had had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was a carpenter's son from Nazareth. Yet he was and is the shepherd king of God's people. David was the man after God's own heart with a humble spirit and a desire to do God's will. Jesus was both a descendant of David, a man, and God himself. And yet, even though he was God, as Paul writes in Philippians, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to death so that you and I could live. In our passage, we see God sovereignly, graciously provide for his people. And we see him raise up an unexpected king who's marked by this heart of humility. And in these things, we see our king, King Jesus. And our king... King Jesus, what's his call? He invites us to come to him. You see, he's not a harsh master. He's not cruel. He's not demanding. He says of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. His call to you is to come to him. Come to him as your savior. Come to him as your Lord. Take his yoke upon you. Learn from him. Have the same humility as David, who was the man after God's own heart. Have the same humility As the Lord, he himself is gentle and lowly in heart. That's what he calls us to. That's what he invites us to. That is where we will find rest for our weary souls. We find it in him, in King Jesus. So whether you're burdened by your sin or whether you're burdened by your suffering 
Whether, whether you need to enter God's kingdom to be saved or whether you're already in the kingdom and you just wanna be used by God in greater ways for his glory, the call is the same. It's come to Jesus, come to King Jesus, come to him in humility, come to him in repentance, come to him in submission to his will, his word for your life. Come to him, confess your sins to him, cast your burdens upon him, take up your cross and follow him. That's his call, that's his beckoning, that's his invitation. And as God says in James 4.10, if we would humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt us. So church, let's humble ourselves before God today, this day. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord so that he may exalt us for our good and his glory.